Jax is back. Now, if you're new to this podcast, I began my radio career at 15 and ended it 30 years later. When I turned 30, my next guest actually hired me. Al Burke was the program director of Y102. Al, it is awesome talking to you. How are you? Good morning, Jackie. Just uh, enjoying the, the woods behind my house here and, and just chilling. Good. It's a nice day to do that, I'll tell you. And I just want to thank you for spending some time with me, with us, with people who are uh, very excited to hear what you're doing now, what happened then, and where we go from here. So I'm going to start with a couple of questions. And first and foremost, how did it all start for you? I started when I was a teenager. I, I lived in a suburb of Camden, New Jersey. Uh, uh, it's called Fairview. And uh, I used to go up in my bedroom at night and put on my little transistor radio, and I could see Philadelphia from up there. I could see the PSFS lighted sign that may even still be up there in the sky. And I would listen to Philadelphia radio stations like WFIL, WIBG, AM, of course. Uh, those were probably the two main pop top 40 stations. And just used to marvel of what these guys were doing, you know, and, and sometimes I would tune in uh, channels from across the country, like Wolfman Jack, I think he was broadcasting from, <clears throat> excuse me, Mexico on like a million watt transmitter, something illegal in this country, hear him, and he just had that bug, you know, I said, boy, that would be fun to do, and here I am, I'm like 15, 16 years old, I don't have a clue what I'm going to do tomorrow, but that's what I was thinking. So you're 15 years old, and you know exactly what you want to do, and it comes to me, um, as, as something crazy, because that's exactly when I started, um, just just finding that itch to be in radio, on radio, finding out everything that I needed to know. So you're doing all that, but how do you actually end up in Reading, Pennsylvania? Well, let me go back to being going from 15 to like 32, 33 years old. I didn't get into the radio until I was that old. Uh, I, I married young, had a child at, at you know, at a young age, and my first wife, when I would talk about that, she would say, you're crazy, you're never going to be able to do that, and I had all kinds of jobs, you name it, I did it, I hated every job, and it wasn't until uh, uh, we got divorced, like 1979 or something like that, that I went to a broadcasting school in Philadelphia, the American Academy of Broadcasting, and uh, I, I got behind for it, you know, uh, it was owned by a famous Philadelphia disc jockey, Long John Wade, I think he was on WFIL. And had a lot of good teachers, and I was the first, oldest one in the class, and the first one to get a job before the class was even over. And I was hired at WPAZ AM station in in Pottstown. And one day, after being there six months or so, I was doing the news, and uh, the afternoon jock came over, and this was old school. You know, had a news booth with glass. He taps on the window, and he's always playing jokes on that. What do you want? He says, a guy on the phone from Reading. So if anybody here would like to come up for an interview for a stationaire, it's, yeah, put them on. I pick up the phone. It was Don Greth. Don Greth was the program director at WRAW. So I went up for the interview, and I was hired there. I did mornings at WRAW, playing the music of your life, big band music and all that. But, hey, I was in radio, and I was in Reading, and it was better than Potsdam. And then the uh, Franco family came along and, of course, bought that station, moved WRFY into there, Mike Shannon was the PD, and, uh, you know, I was scared. Am I going to still have a job? And I, they kept me there, and I, I did afternoons. I did mornings. I did a lot of stuff there. Uh, so that's how I got to Reading. Don Gleff did it. 
<laughs> Don Greth brought you to Reading. And there's so many changes that you talk about during that that window of time and, and all the different names of, you know, a family owned radio station and then, uh, you know, Mike Shannon coming in there. And well, obviously before that, as you said, the Franco family and just a big circle of how things eventually turn around. But you start out on AM radio and and you're the program director. In well, that wasn't that didn't happen right away. Right, right. It it turns around down the road. But I mean, how does all of this from starting in AM radio, and you, you know, you become the program director of Y one hundred two? Well, it was a it was a, like a three four year uh, thing. I I was the production director at uh, WRFY. And then uh, Mitch Carroll, who was a salesman, him and another guy from Reading, they bought a small AM station in Sanford, Florida. I thought, hey, why not? You know, they're going to pay to move me down, my family down to, to Florida. I'll go. I'll go to Florida. So I went to uh, their small station in Sanford. It was a dump, but it was it was something. You know, I was there. And one day, Tommy Franco was on a visit, him and the doctor, and they came into my studio, and I was the only one in there. And said, how do you like it here, Al? And I handed him a, a, a piece of paper. I said, I hate it here. Get me out of here. He said, give me your phone number. That night, uh, Tommy called me, and they were staying at the Sheraton in, uh, in, uh, on the beach in Melbourne. And we went and had dinner, and they told me they were buying two stations. And one of them was uh, at 102.6 or something on the dial, and they were going to change it into Y102. You want to be the program director? So fine. So I went there, became the program director, and started up a whole brand new station, hired all the people, changed the format, did that for three years, and then came back to Reading for 175 WYCL. Again, Mitch Carroll involved in that. Got fired after like six months because I got a new consultant. Was out of work for like 30 days, and instead of you know crying in my, my beer, I started calling people, and I called uh, WIOV. And the PD, his name was Brad Flick. He said, dude, you're out of work. Come on up here. I'll hire you. So I went up and I, I did afternoons at doing country, cowboy hat and all. You know, I'd do anything. And uh, I kept in touch with Tommy Franco and with Shannon from time to time. And uh, they kept saying, yeah, maybe one day out, maybe one day out. I think Mike was punishing me a bit, you know, making me wait. So one day I got a call and he said, uh, the owners of the company, which was a small company for, out of Atlantic City, it was called U.S. Radio, are into town. I'd like you to come up to the shirt and have lunch with them and meet them. So I go up, I sit down, I got my suitcase full of resumes and newspaper clippings, and we're eating and drinking. And finally, so the vice president of that company says, well, Mike, we need a program director for Y102. And Mike says, you're the guy, so welcome aboard. Mike will take care of the details. So that's how I came back to Y102. And how old? Like 19... 1992, I think it was, something like that, 91, 92. Okay, and how old were you at that point? Uh, I'm not sure exactly, maybe 35, 38, something like that. So a dream at 15 became a reality at that time of my life. It, it was a crazy time, and it was a good time to be in that that uh, core of radio broadcasting because that's when radio was real. What it is now, we'll talk about that down the road in our uh, interview, Al. But during that time of being program director, I know that you have had to have seen so many different things and you had a lot of different choices to make. I mean, being in charge of a radio station and 
the DJs behind it, the music that was being played. So, you know, how do you go about deciding what kind of music that you're going to add for the week or how, how do they give you the reins to do what you want to do? Well, I had, I had free reign. Mike Shannon let me do whatever I thought I needed to do. And I looked at the first ratings book. And at that time, uh, the station was very poppy, very top 40. And it was losing men. Uh, it had a lot of uh, women, but young women and teenagers. And then I looked at, uh, there's a thing in Arbitral I need to look at to see what other stations people listen to that listen to you. And I found they were listening to WMMR, WYSP, WMGK. I thought, geez, you know, 40% of our listeners like some sort of rock, classic rock, this and that. And it was Mike Brown and I, who's the music director, then kicking around ideas, and somehow we came up with this rock hits format. Uh, Mike Shannon didn't like it at all, but he said, okay, go ahead. And then it worked. <laughs> but picking the music, getting back to that, it, it, it had, it always, with me, it always had to fit the sound of the station. Um, and the record companies would come, you remember them, Bobby Silver, and they'd come and they'd play the new songs and uh, maybe bring around a band or an artist for you to meet, and they'd ask you to play it. And WRFY was very powerful in the music business. If, if we played the record, it would get uh, publicized in uh, different trade magazines and uh, would show what stations are playing it. And that was we were important to them, even though it was technically a small market, but we had a lot of listeners. I would pick uh, music based on uh, who the artist was and do I think that it would fit the station and would appeal to both men and women. It wasn't about if it was uh, number one on the charts. It had nothing to do with that. Just that it, did it sound right. You talked about Bobby Silver. It's funny because, you know, the people on the, you know, that are listening to the radio have no idea who the Ron Kyles and, you know, Bobby Silvers of the world were um, promoting different artists, but they brought to us so many different opportunities to, you know, go to concerts and get concert tickets. And, and that was such a fun part of radio, meeting these artists coming into the studio um, how about a single night out or a party from your radio career that has been one of the most memorable times, thanks to, to maybe one of those two people? Well, uh, not including our legendary Christmas parties at the River Edge with Mike Shannon, does that count? <laughs> yeah, you know, they count at some point. <laughs> we were the most politically incorrect and fun people ever. You couldn't do those things uh, that we did then now. But anyway, getting back to uh, Bobby Silver and stuff like that, I have a lot of memories of things that she did for me, but uh, I'll give you this brief one. We're down in Washington, D.C., or Maryland. It was a thing called the Bobby Poe Convention, where program directors, music directors were invited there. It was like a three-day thing, nice hotel, and all the record companies would bring artists, and they, they'd perform. You know, I saw uh, on that trip, uh, Eddie Money performed. Uh, I got to sit with him and talk for a, a, few, a few minutes. Bruce Hornsby actually had me come up and pretend I'm playing the piano with him. But the next day, we got on a bus and went to Camden Yards, a uh, whole busload of us uh, in Baltimore, to see the Orioles play. And that was cool in itself, just to be inside that, that ballpark. It's old school, you know, brick and, and grass. And they had a suite. So as any suites have, they have the inside part, and then they have an outside part with some seats out there and a railing. So me and another program director stand outside watching the game, and these girls kept turning around and looking at us. And first it was two, and then it was three, and then a half a dozen of them, they're standing out, and they're pointing up and smiling. They're like, man, these, they think we're hot. 
Then all of a sudden, I turned around, and David Coverdale was standing behind me uh, from Whitesnake. He was uh, on, on Bobby Silver's uh, label, Geffen Records. They wanted to see him, not us. <laughs> so they ran into the building and ran up and tried to get in. They did let him in for a few minutes to get some autographs, and they had security there. But I got to meet David Coverdale and was uh, thinking that the girls were liking us, and they weren't. Wow. Yeah, you know what? And you guys in radio, you always had people following you at some point, you know, at, at parties or, you know, different yeah. remotes. That's just the way it was. Yeah. All right. How about, uh, you talked about Wolfman Jack, but I know that I listened to, um, you know, a lot of my favorites were on WOGL, Oldies 98, because that's how I grew up listening to my mom and dad's favorite station. And it was just on the stereo all the time in the house but who was your radio inspiration or what station did you listen to uh growing up and you said i i want to be that person i want to sound like that they're awesome well out of the philadelphia station uh there was the geeter with the heater if you remember him jerry blavitt uh he's a fast talking guy you know I, I couldn't be him uh i don't remember the names of all the guys on uh WFIL and WIBG, but I, I do remain, I remember High Lit, and uh, I don't know what station he was on, but he was more of a smoother type of guy. He wasn't high energy like that, and actually High Lit ended up uh, moving over to uh, WDAS-FM. I don't know if most people know, but WDAS-FM in Philadelphia was one of the first progressive rock stations, and it's the first time when FM was coming into its own that stations were playing album cuts, you know, like six-minute songs. I, and this is, I never heard anything like this in my life because every other song was only two minutes long back in the 50s and 60s. I used to listen to High Lit over there. I thought, if I ever get to do this, I'll kind of, you know, want to be like him. He was he was kind of smooth. Not that I was ever as smooth as High Lit, but I think uh, he was a guy that I looked to. Albert, the smoothest that you can get, I'll tell you. A lot of people, <laughs> a lot of followers, yes. Indeed. Um, the, the people that listen to radio now and may bump into us every now and again come up with the same question over and over. And the question is, why, why did radio change so much? How did it change? What is the reason that there were so many changes? How do you make a person understand that? It's real simple. Uh, when, corporate radio, uh, when corporations took over the radio station, originally, uh, FM stations, uh, due to the FCC rules, uh, you could only uh, own, I think it was 13 stations total, and uh, you could only operate two in any market, which was an AM and an FM, and somehow those rules got changed, and it was like a, a, a fire sale. So these big companies with a ton of money, a ton of money from investors, went out and bought up all what we call mom and pop radio stations, stations that were started by families and things like that, bought them all up. And in some cases, they bought five or six of them in a the market. It's true in Philadelphia. It's true in Allentown. It's true everywhere now. And Reading got caught up in that. And we're bought up by big corporations. And with big corporations, it's all about the bottom line. And when technology changed, where they could operate stations without human beings, I remember when we first got that system at the station uh, that played the music, uh, the, I forget the name of it. Uh, Next Gen. Mm -hmm. 
And Nick said to me, this will be the end of our radio careers. And this is we only had it. Going, no, 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 it just makes our job easier. Everything's in the computer, this and that, you know. So after uh, uh, Nick was let go and Chuck was let go and Susie was let go and Freddie was let go, uh, I, I believe uh, Nick was a prophet. And so it's cheaper to run a station with a computer and not many live people. Who would have thought I would have said Nick was right? Should have listened to Nick. <laughs> Nothing we were going to do about it anyway. This is true. It's absolutely true. And if somebody said to you today, I really want to be a DJ, what would your advice be to them? I'd tell them, go, go down to uh, Turkey Hill and get a job. <laughs> it's sad, but it's true. You know, people, yeah, people can't follow their dreams like we could. So we were so fortunate in that aspect of you know, following our dream of being in radio. Um, well, the biggest thing back to that is there are no, uh, everyone starts small. You got to start at a small station. You know, you don't get on MMR your first day, at, you know, that you, you, you think you're at this job here or any of those stations or even Y102. You got to put in some time somewhere doing something. And uh, a lot of people started out uh, doing weekends, overnights, working Christmas Day, all the stuff that full-time people didn't want to do. And those jobs don't exist anymore. So if you have a station that has you know, live DJs, as most do, uh, the bigger stations have like from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., but there's no one there at night or overnight. Uh, there's nowhere to start. So you can't learn your craft and get started somewhere. So that's what's difficult about terrestrial radio. If you could be stuck eternally in one year's music scene, when would that be? You know, I thought about that, and I don't think I would want to because my musical tastes are, are everything. I enjoyed every era. You know, when the Beatlemania hit, I was working in a small department store as a teenager, and when we got the Beatle wigs and, and stuff <laughs> and Beatle uh, bubblegum and Beatle records, and people panicking outside the store, young girls screaming to get in and, and all that, and the Beatles had four or five songs on the radio and the whole British invasion, so... That was cool, but I wouldn't want to be stuck with that, although I still listen to a lot of that. Then the progressive rock came along, you know, the Moody Blues and, and uh, Pink Floyd, uh, uh, things I like like that. And then the, the harder rock, you know, ACDC. But even today, I, I like Harry Connick Jr. I mean, it's, I don't have a particular genre of music, so I like, uh, in my own personal taste, I wouldn't want to be stuck in one kind. I always wanted to see what was next. And speaking of what's next, tell me about what's happening with your radio career right now. Well, uh, I'm on my fifth day of being unemployed now. Uh, the station I worked for, it was a small station. You know, I had retired and, and moved up here, and then I got bored, and I did manage to land this job at that station. And they sold the station, and the new owners took it over about six weeks ago. And from day one, one of them said to me, and this was at, at the beginning of the coronavirus thing, uh, I don't know how we're going to make it. You know, I'm thinking, geez, you just got here. You don't have enough money to keep it running for, you know, more than six weeks. But anyway, so I go in every day, do my bit. And uh, last week they called me and I didn't pick up the phone, but left me a message that uh, Friday would be my last day. So me and the morning guy got booted. I went in, you know what I did Friday? I changed the format. It was the old Albert classic rock show, rock blocks and all that stuff. And you know, I had the best show of my life that day. <laughs> I was just so relaxed. It Walked speaks volumes. 
yeah, I said, see it, you know, walked out. So it is what it is. And, you know, this virus is hurting all kinds of businesses, but I don't know of any other radio station. I know where AJ is. He's still on the air out there at WIOB. Mm-hmm. And uh, the stations I listen to in Allentown, the full-timers are working from home because you have the technology. And maybe the part-timers don't have any hours because they don't have that set up. But um, you just don't get rid of your talent because the economy is in the dump right now. You need to work through it. So I, I've been depressed. I've been angry, all those things. But uh, I went to Walmart yesterday and found sanitizer. So for the first time this week. So I accomplished something. You did, and you will. And, you know, when you were working in Reading, you always said, you know, where you want to live, how you want to live, what you want to do. And you did it and you're doing it. And you know what? This isn't the end of the road for you because, you know, your voice is gold and there are people maybe even right now that are listening and, you know, it's not going to be the end of the road for you. And and that's, you know, just as as clear as day. You're a, a super talent and, you know, you have a gift of musical knowledge that no one can come close to. So I know it's it's going to happen again. This is just temporary. It's kind of like a, a slowdown, a pause in your radio career for now. Trust me on this. Well, one, one thing on that regard that we can move on is that, and I won't mention names or where it is, but I know someone who started an internet radio station, and he is very, very successful with it. Mm-hmm. And he started just by himself, and now he has an afternoon guy, he has some weekend people, this and that. And he was shocked to learn I was no longer, you know, in the business. And he said, hey, you know, uh, down the road, let's keep in touch. Maybe when this all blows over, there's something you could do. Perfect. And that's the way of the world. That's what people are doing. I mean, everything, everything has changed so much. And I know that you're one of those people that when you hear that people are Zooming for their business meetings, you're kind of like, oh, for crying out loud, because we're so old school. You know what I mean? And that's just the way it is. But that's uh, very positive. A very positive well, my friend, thing. The other, when we were talking the other day, we have a really nice stereo system out here on the back porch for our, for our you know, parties. Mm-hmm. But uh, I said, well, how can I play it on my good, good radio, 1,000-watt thing? And he walked me and Terry through it through, with your Bluetooth. My, my receiver here accepts Bluetooth. So she downloaded the app on her phone, put her on Bluetooth, and there was the classic rock blasting out of my good stereo. So you can listen to it. Uh, like old school radio, but it's coming from your Bluetooth. So yeah. those things are those things amaze me, and perhaps one day I'll be I'll be doing that. All right, so do the math for me. How many years altogether since you started are you in radio? Have you been in radio? Uh, I would say forty. Forty years. Taken. Yeah. All right. So what is one thing? that has touched your heart over the years? Because I know that you've seen a lot. You've done a lot for people. Um, you, you've shared a lot of great tips on how you can help other people. But what is one thing that has really um, just resonated in your heart that you want to share with people that you've well, been I able to it, do? I think, and I did this in Florida, and we did it here, and you were a big part of it. So let me just say this. It, it was about doing things for the community. You know, the FCC licenses uh, terrestrial radio stations to serve the community that you're in, Uh, not just to make money. You have to prove to the government that you do stuff to help the people. And you were, you know, a a wizard at that. And I always believed in that, too. And I think uh, I'll get to one of your, what 
you and I did together. But the first thing I did uh, in Reading that <clears throat> I thought was cool was uh, the one and the two rockin' summers at Pat Garrett's Amphitheater. Were you working there then, or was that before? No, I was not. That was Chuck Corbin <laughs> days. <laughs> Chuck and Freddie. Yeah. So what we did is, I, with my contacts with the record business and the local uh, bands and stuff, we come up with a thing, 10 bands for $10. It was a summer day, all day, like a mini Woodstock, you know. And you know Pat Garrett's, it's outside, you sit in the grass and, and all that. And uh, uh, I lined up all the entertainment. Other people helped me, but I was the contact with the record companies. And I, we'd have some local bands, and then we'd have, uh, you know, an up-and-coming band that the record company wanted to promote. And then Bobby Silver, again, got us 10,000 Maniacs, and they were the closer. So it was an all-day festival, and, you know, being up there on the stage and being the MC and making sure everything worked right, along with the rest of my crew. And in the end, we gave a donation that was so much from each ticket to uh, a, uh, an organization in Reading that helped battered women. I don't know the name of it. It's been so long. Lucky I can remember that it was there. But <laughs> it was a thing that we presented a check to them. And that's the kind of thing that touched me the most. Not only did we have fun, not only did we entertain the people, but we helped people too. And then with, uh, with you, it, another good one was the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. When they came to town, most people don't know that, and that they like to donate to a local charity. And, and you were the one that came up with, I think it was Special Olympics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we got up there on the stage in the Sovereign Center, and it was the Sovereign Center then, and uh, presented the check and went through all that. And, you know, it just, it, that's, for me, are the things that I remember most about radio. Yeah, we had a lot of, so many good memories. And when we get together, I think, you know, which isn't often at all, but when we do or when we did, it's the same stories over and over, but they're never going to get old and they're never going to, you know, be sad stories. They're always good, solid stories and great memories that we all shared together. Um, and I know this last question of mine, Al, you can't take it the wrong way. It's not a somber question. It's a, a good down to earth question. How do you want to be remembered? Al Burke. I want to be remembered by the people I worked with as someone, as someone who was honest, who was willing to take their ideas and, and help them and work with them to, to be successful. Because I always thought, I'm not going to be successful unless you and Freddie and Nick and all of us are successful at the same time. You can't have you know, one or two people that are going in the other direction. So everybody on the same page, uh, I was always willing to take uh, advice from anybody and try it. I didn't like criticism if somebody said, I don't, I don't, I don't like that song. But, you know, and I, I used to say, well, it's not about what you and I like. It's about what the listeners like. So I hope I'm remembered for being a guy who was honest and straightforward and, and did this to, uh, to, uh, make an impact on the listeners, the millions that I've broadcasted to throughout my life from all over the, you know, Florida and Pennsylvania. And currently right now, Al, you are living in Tamaqua, is that correct? Do you live in Tamaqua or is it Jim Thorpe or so, where? Uh, no, no, neither one. Oh, I'm in, not even uh, close. I'm in Carbon County, uh, which is uh, outside of Jim Thorpe. It takes okay. me about 15 minutes to get there. Okay. You know, it's a rural area with uh, trees and a nice, quiet neighborhood, and you know it's just very safe in here, and it's it's, it's great. 
Good. And you have a dog, Getty, and your lovely wife, Terry, and you made some new friends there. And and this is exactly what you had talked about, you know, kind of moving to where you want to be and doing exactly what you want to do. So hats off to you. Not many people get to say, I'm doing what I want to do. And unfortunately, right now, you know, the way of the world and the things that are going on, you're not alone in, in what has happened with the coronavirus and um, yeah. you know, people losing their jobs and things like that. So, um, in closing, I do want to say to you, Al, thank you from the bottom of my heart for giving me what I wanted in my life and believing in me because you did, you believed in me and you showed me that. And it was hard being a female in, in a man's world to me, because there were so many men in radio and around me and you believed in me and you believed in my ideas. So, Thank you so much for that. They were the best years of my life. Well, one more thing. It wouldn't have happened unless you uh, got up the nerve to hand me a cassette <laughs> and David Stein Firehouse Bar during a, a remote down there. <laughs> you remember? <laughs> I, I completely remember. I had no idea what I was That's doing. That's how it started. That's how it started. I was so intimidated and afraid and my gosh, uh, David Stein, Al Burke, of all people. I was very, very intimidated by you. And uh, it turned out you just have a heart of gold. And I truly appreciate all of that and all of my family that I made during my time at Y102. But um, thank you so much for, for sharing all of this with me and you know the people that are listening and have wondered, where's Al Burke? What's he doing now? So now people know. Uh, I have one more. I have one more important thing today to do today. Uh, I I need to uh, go to the Jim Thorpe Liquor Store. It's the only <laughs> one open in the area. You have to call, make an appointment. No. Uh, they bring it out. They bring it out to your car in hazmat suits or whatever. You're not allowed out of the car. They put it in the back door. I mean, it's bizarre. <laughs> Just to get some vodka. But hey, that's my important job of the day. Besides talking to you. That's it. Well, that's perfect. All right. All right. Okay. Well, you be well and thank you so much, Al Burke. Jack's is back is brought to you in part by Queen City Family Restaurant and Visions Federal Credit Union.